0: Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, September 2nd. Good day to subscribe to The Local. You can check it out at Linktree backslash The Local Portland or just find The Local on the podcast app of your choice. Today, back in the day, September 2nd, 1945, Vietnam declared itself independent from France. Vietnam's Declaration of Independence was modeled on the American Declaration. It set the scenes for years of war with France and later, the United States. Vietnam was a French colony from 1858 until its revolution in 1945. To justify the imperial domination, France argued it was their goal to help modernize the underdeveloped regions of Asia. But really, France was exploiting the region for raw material and cheap labor, an old story. By 1945, the Vietnamese had struggled against France's political and religious oppression for almost 100 years. Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam's leader at the time, envisioned a unified communist nation, but the country, like the rest of the Cold War world, would remain split on that issue of communism for decades. And on that same day, in that same year, September 2nd, back in the day 1945, Japan formally surrendered to the United States. VJ Day, the official end of World War II. The instrument of surrender of Japan was signed aboard the USS Missouri and Tokyo Bay, Japan unconditionally surrendered to the United States. Today, not as far back in the day, September 2nd, 2004, Jerry Turner, artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival from 1971 to 1991, died of heart failure. Jerry had the leadership of the Shakespeare Festival during a period of rapid growth, which saw the addition of two new theaters, an expanded set of non-Shakespearean plays, an extended season, soaring attendance, and professional status for the company as an Actors' Equity Association house. Under Turner, the festival earned national recognition, winning the Tony Award in 1983. In 1991, after Jerry Turner refused a National Endowment for the Arts grant because of its restrictions on freedom of expression, he received commendations from the Society of American Journalists and Authors and the American Civil Liberties Union. In his gesture, he expressed his deep belief in the value of theater. Today, we'll start with the quick six news headlines. That sounds familiar. And we'll have an interview with Kali Thorne Ladd, founder and executive director of Kairos PDX. X-Ray. First up, it is today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Three local law enforcement agencies have declined Governor Kate Brown's request for help. As violence has increased at Portland protests, Police continue to insist their resources are spread too thin. For two weekends in a row, fighting has erupted at right wing rallies in town. At both rallies, police have offered little intervention, saying they lack enough officers. After last Saturday's shooting, Governor Brown requested help from three local law enforcement agencies. On Monday, all three of them declined. Clackamas County Sheriff Craig Roberts said, and I'm quoting, increasing law enforcement resources in Portland will not solve the nightly violence. Washington County Sheriff Pat Garrett had similar reservations. He referenced, and I'm quoting, the lack of political support for public safety and the, quote, intense scrutiny on use of force as his reasons for declining. And a third agency, the Gresham Police Department, declined as well. Another sticking point is Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt. In August, the new district attorney announced that he would not prosecute protesters accused of nonviolent crimes. Sheriff Roberts blamed Schmidt for not prosecuting protesters who've been arrested night after night. Although, according to court reports, only a few protesters fit this description. There's a political argument happening here, folks, and not based solely on facts, results, and clarity. The Oregon Association of Chiefs of Police also cited, quote, a lack of accountability for those arrested. On Monday, the DA's office remained firm, stating they remain committed to prosecuting criminal offenses such as arson and physical violence. And while the three enforcement agencies declined to send officers, they did volunteer other forms of support. Clackamas County offered to help answer phones, and Washington County will continue to provide air support and help with criminal investigations after the fact. 243 new cases of COVID-19, six new deaths. Oregon's total case count almost 27,000. Total death count confirmed at 465. Multnomah County reported 50 new cases, the highest in Oregon. Washington County with 42 new cases, and Clackamas County reported 26. The Health Authority released their weekly testing summary, so far, 26,550 of last week's tests have been completed. Of those, 4.4% were positive. As of Saturday, the cumulative positivity rate was 4.6%, well below the national average of 9%. Eight of Portland's independent publishers have teamed up on a new book bundle. The bundle, it's called Read Independent, features eight nonfiction titles written mostly by local authors. Each publisher submitted the book they felt would most benefit from the exposure. Some of those books were published just before the lockdown, making promotion nearly impossible. The publishers hope that Read Independent will replace some of the income lost to COVID-19, as many brick-and-mortar bookstores remain closed to shoppers. Of course, we've been covering Powell's, for instance. Laura Stanfill of Forest Avenue Press said that the closures have been devastating to our sales. We also hope the bundle will remind readers of the larger literary community in Portland help bring people together in a time of distance. Microcosm Publishing, which has sold bundles of their own catalog in the past, will be distributing Read Independent, which is available on their website for delivery or pickup. You can find a bundle of info about the bundle of books at microcosm.pub. Here's the books, folks: Ground Truth, a geological survey of a life. It's Ruby McConnell's book. It's a lyrical scientific memoir of nature and the aftermath of a disaster, Katrina's sandcastles: New Hope from the Ruins of New Orleans Schools by Casey Eckhart. It's a teaching memoir. This particular happiness, a childless love story by Jackie Shannon Hollis, an affirming memoir of choice to not have kids. It's the first nonfiction offering from the Literary Forest Avenue Press. Liar, a Memoir by Rob Roberts. Rob, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. It's a wild ride through a rocker's disintegrating memory. The Ungrateful Refugee, What Immigrants Never Tell You by Dina Nairi explores what it's like to be refugee versus popular misconceptions. Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe is a non-binary, asexual coming-out memoir in graphic novel form. It's offered by Oni Press. They put out a lot of comic books. And by the host of Show on X-Ray, Beervana, Jeff Allworth, has written The Widmer Way, How Two Brothers Led Portland's Craft Beer Revolution. And finally, Stranger in the Pen by Muhammad Assem explores the quiet brilliance of the toll of racial profiling grief and the connections with home and family. That's the book bundle, folks. Well, Another effort to recall the governor has failed. On Monday, the Oregon Republican Party announced that it had not gathered enough signatures to trigger a recall election. But it was close. Of the over 280,000 valid signatures needed, petitioners said they fell short by just 3,000. But to be clear, if they turned in 277,000, that doesn't mean they turned in 277,000 valid signatures, probably more like 220,000. Party leaders blamed COVID-19 restrictions for their inability to gather those signatures. They said the canceling of gatherings, such as state fairs and festivals, deprived them of their chance to recall the governor. They also suggested the state elections officials had legally questionable decisions. They have not filed a legal challenge or backed up those claims. This was the fifth try in two years to recall Governor Kate Brown. Two of those were conducted by Oregon's Republican Party. The first attempt overlapped with a separate group's recall petition. That might have split up their signatures. Prior to that petition's failure, Governor Brown's office signaled that it was taking the challenge seriously. They were prepared to sue Republican Secretary of State Bev Clarno for allowing only one observer during the verification process of those signatures. So the governor is still the governor. Next chance to vote on whether she's going to be the governor? I don't know. is maybe another failed recall effort? Or when she's term limited in just over two years. On Monday night, protesters targeted Mayor Ted Wheeler's house. They set fire in the street. They demanded his resignation. 200 people marched into the Pearl District, gathered outside his condo to mock the mayor's birthday on Monday. Some wore party hats. They sang Happy Tear Gas to You. Later, demonstrators lit a fire in the street. Some broke into nearby businesses, stole furniture to add to the blaze. Fires also reached the condo, and some protesters threw flaming newspapers into the building's ground floor, damaging a storefront. The fire was extinguished before it spread to any residences. At that point, police arrived, declared the gathering a riot. Twenty were arrested over the course of the night, most on charges of disorderly conduct. The police have opened an arson investigation. A video that has gone viral from the protest depicts an officer tackling a protester and striking him in the face. Sarah Anarone, who's running for mayor, had this to say, Ted Wheeler is not a competent mayor and does not deserve to be our police commissioner a day longer, but that doesn't make this behavior acceptable. Meanwhile, more and more progressives in Portland are calling for self-policing of... Meanwhile, more and more progressives in Portland are arguing for more self-policing of protests to make sure that the excesses are limited. And Oregon home and business owners will be protected from foreclosure until the end of the year. In late June, the Oregon legislature passed a moratorium on foreclosures of both homes and businesses. It was part of the big special session. And under that moratorium, under that moratorium, lenders are barred from pursuing foreclosures when people don't pay their mortgage bills. And borrowers are expected to make their missed payments at the end of their loan term. That bill, which passed 39 to 18 in the House, also gave Governor Brown the power to extend its deadline. On Monday, Governor Brown did exactly that, extending protections until December 31st. The moratorium had been set up to expire at the end of this month, September. It's September, by the way. September just started. As part of the announcement, Governor Brown's office said it will work with lenders on developing a long-term solution. A similar bill also protects home and commercial renters from evictions. That protection has already been extended once. It is now set to expire at the end of this month. Remember, this month is September. And that's today's Quick Six Local Rundown x-ray. Next up, we have an interview with Kali Thorne Ladd, director of Kairos PDX. A recent introduction described Kali by saying that she is a social entrepreneur committed to educational revolution through approaches rooted in love and inclusion. An apt description for this local leader. In this interview, Kali discusses the achievement gap in Portland Public Schools and how Kairos
1: PDX is working to close that gap. Here's Kali Thorne Ladd speaking with X-Ray's Andy Lindbergh. A 2019 state audit showed an achievement gap in Portland public schools. Black students were meeting standards at 21%, while white students were meeting them at 74%. Today, Kali Ladd, co-founder and director of Kairos PDX, an organization focused on educational equity, is joining us we'll be discussing Kairos PDX's role in closing that gap. Thank you for joining us, Kali.
2: Thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay?
1: Yes, I can. I can. Thank you. It's Thank always it's uh, I've I've called in before and it's always odd to, <laughs> to be like, "Oh, yeah, is this working?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, let's jump right in if you don't mind. Um, Kairos PDX runs a learning academy public charter school. Can you tell us about what makes your program different from uh, getting education at Portland public schools?
2: Well, I'd like to say, first of all, it is a Portland public school. Great. It's um, one of the options within PPS, uh, and we have oversight by PPS, and um, so we're not we have some independ- independence, but I think it's a misperception that we're completely separate. We're not. We're beholden financially and otherwise outcome-wise, academic outcome-wise, to the district.
1: Okay. That's um, important information. Thank you.
2: I, so we differ from a neighborhood school, I would say, um, but only in that uh, while we're we're outperforming uh, a number of the neighborhood schools that are serving dem- uh, similar demographics and uh, in Portland. Um, we, our student body makeup is actually very similar to a lot of schools in the Albina community. We serve 74 percent kids of color, um, a little over 50 percent are black. Um, and I would say we have a band in our curriculum that is more culturally specific to the black history and black achievement and black contributions across disciplines. Um, We emphasize care and connection, and so we do a lot of work to help children know that they are seen and valued. Um, We, Our approach to behavior is a restorative practice approach. Um, We do a lot of emphasis on social-emotional skills in addition to the academic skills because all of the research in neuroscience points to that being instrumental in helping kids' brains function at their best. Um, and we do a lot of work in engaging families. We believe families are first teachers. We are um, committed to working with and involving families in a way that honors their knowledge and their belief in their children and we are continuously um, I think partnering with them in ways that you don't often see in in neighborhood schools.
1: So uh, you're getting uh, sounds like much more involvement from the, the, the community and, and really connecting, learning to the community. Is, is that, our, uh, I guess my question comes around, what, what drives that achievement gap uh, for, for children and, and how are these different things that you're doing um, uh, useful in, in closing that gap?
2: Um, Well, I think there's a lot of things to drive the achievement gap, so that's a really big question. (laughs) Um, And the achievement gap is not new. Uh, Mm -hmm. It is something that has persisted in Portland. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that drive it. Um, I honestly, there's a podcast out now that is called Nice White Parents, that came out uh, through the New York Times, and it's featuring a you know, school in New York, mm-hmm. but it could easily be Portland, Oregon. And essentially, we've built a public system around white children and their families, and mm-hmm. we've ignored the needs of black and brown children and indigenous children for a very long time. Uh, when you center learning around one population and not everybody else, and by the way, like kids of color make up about 50% of children in public schools in Oregon right now. Mm-hmm. And Beaverton, I believe, is our school district, but Portland is right behind it. Yeah. When, you don't, when you don't build a system around all the kids in it, you're going to see differences in opportunity and achievement. There's a lot of structural racism that is built into the system. And I recommend this podcast to every single parent and non-parent uh, in in portland (laughs) regardless of their race because it's eye-opening and it speaks to what i think we've known Mm -hmm. which is how we prioritize them we invest in some schools we give them resources we support them getting their own resources we listen to their voices when their parents come asking for things like there's so many layers of why we see differences and you know um there it it goes beyond academic achievement we tend to talk about the achievement gap and we're focusing only on test scores that is that is such a limited narrow slice of what perpetuates inequity in education and i think when you listen to students talk about their experiences in schools and i've had the opportunity to do so over the years and have worked within the neighborhood schools both in southeast portland and north portland uh, long before i uh, helped start kairos their experiences speak to the reality experiences of not being seen of being ignored of being singled out for disciplinary behaviors um Mm -hmm. when they are young children with teachers not listening to them and it goes on and on and i think we really need to actually listen to our children's voices more and i think it will tell us the story about what's happening well, I don't know if that answered your question, but
1: <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it did either, buddy. It, it you bring up some really important it sounds like lessons that you are learning, you know, working in the way that you are. Um, yeah. If if you so you you've you've importantly pointed out that that Kairos PDX is a part of Portland Public Schools. It's not this separate thing. So if uh, being involved in uh, Portland Public Schools. What are the ways that that you collaborate with the the rest of the, the 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 PPS system?
2: Well, you know, we'd like to collaborate more, and I hope that if there are teachers and district members listening to this, they they hear that. In our first year, we were able to do some training and professional development for PPS teachers, um, and we worked with teachers from a variety of schools around. Um, our practices, um, it was called building communities of resistance and, um, it was about, you know, culturally responsiveness and resiliency education, which is a, a fundamental part of what we do. Um, since then, we've had conversations with the district and I think we're on a path now, you know, there's been changes in leadership at PPS and a lot has happened, uh, in terms of people. Uh, leadership across the district changing, Mm -hmm. but I think we're at a point with the current superintendent where we're having serious conversations again around, and with the Director of Equity, on how we um, do more work with um, leaders and teachers within PPS. Um, We proposed working closely with some of the schools in the Albina community specifically around our practices. And you know, we have been collaborating with them on a Center for Black Excellence, which right now is a concept, but it's anchoring the success of black children in the Albina community and reimagining how we build an educational uh, pipeline, for lack of a better word, a continuum of supports for children from early childhood through um, higher education, uh, their success and their thriving. And when we talk about our children thriving, we're not just talking about academically, but we're also talking about socially, emotionally, and really culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we have been in conversations, I would say late spring, summer, with the district about this, and we um, hope to do more work in the fall. Um, of course, the, the pandemic and online learning has, you know, everything has turned upside <laughs> down.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, suddenly it's so much more if, complicated.
2: Yeah, but if anything, I think it speaks to, you know, we've maintained our attendance, even with everything turning upside down, because of the relationships we build with children and families. And I think that even in this space of education at a distance, we have a lot to offer. Um, And so we hope, and it's not just PPS. We've actually had other districts um, come to us uh, uh, to learn from us and understand what we're doing. And I've got to say, like we were started because of the achievement issues, as you said in the very beginning. Our mm-hmm. mission is around closing opportunity and achievement gaps, and so we want to be a prototype of how change, how education can look. Um, if we're going to reimagine education, we have to. It has to look and feel differently than it currently has been operating. You need an example of what that can be, and that's what Kairos has has sought to be.
1: So if you're if you were in a position to to offer a, a first step to um other schools or other school districts what what would you suggest uh be that first step toward uh uh building uh educational equity?
2: Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> That's a big question. I mean, one thing I'd be remiss to say, you know, I've been involved along with other community-based organizations in the preschool for all effort. We have fundamental inequity with um, who has access to early childhood education. If children are starting at different places, you're playing catch-up the minute you enter kindergarten. And so access to quality preschool is a big thing within our system that, can begin to level the playing field, and then there there is a measure that will be on the on the ballot in November that helps fund um, access, particularly for low income communities and communities of color, to quality preschool. Um, and so, I think that is one very important thing to um, begin to level the playing field. I think within the K twelve system, you know, it goes to stopping and recognizing that implicit bias is real that we have schema around certain children that dictate the way we orient ourselves around those children and act towards those children it is not an accident that black boys are four to six times more likely to get kicked out of class as early as kindergarten Hmm. um... um, though they are good people i was trained to be a teacher i started my career as a teacher it is not an easy job um... and i think most teachers are very well-meaning and care about children but The things that we digest society, I mean, racism is rampant in society, and we are digesting that, and so it plays out in how we treat children and how we perceive children. Until we, as a system, step back and recognize that, own it, um, implement more reflective protocols, um, allow teachers to have more professional development around implicit bias and schema, and help um, build in space for reflective practice so that, um, from the beginning, we we give children experience and don't see behavior as violent, but see it for what it is: children having emotional responses. Until we sort of change that, it's very difficult for practice to change and for outcomes to change. I believe.
1: That's so. Just real quickly, we uh, unfortunately we need to, to wrap up a little bit. But I'm I'm curious how w- when you're when you're bringing the the, the parents and and community in. Uh, to, uh, to Kairos. I, I had the opportunity to attend um, the Kairos Gala a couple of, of years ago um, and it was mm-hmm. so tremendous and emotional to, to um, see how the, th- these children and their families were, were connected to the school. Um, it, can you just really quickly address the, the way that, that you bring the, the families and community into your educational model?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, as I was saying, we believe families are first teachers, um, that whether good or bad, they have the biggest influence on a child's life. And so we honor that. Um, we believe in community and there are so many things that shape children. Um, the idea of schools going in on their own and isolating children within a building and not recognizing the sort of fabric that supports a child. Um, You you really can't support children thriving without involving their families. I think it's about building trust. It's about not making assumptions. And if any assumption you should be making, it's that every family loves their child and wants their child to succeed. And they may not always have the tools. They may not always have the resources Mm -hmm. to do so, but that is the fundamental Truth and it's a misnomer that you know the parents don't care, and the you know, there's a lot of negative talk around families that is very troubling to me, and it's particularly around black and brown families. And um, it's, I think, patently false um, when you approach a family with respect mm-hmm. and honor. And you know, we as founders and you know, myself, um, all of us as a leadership team. We are from the community. We are <laughs> black and, and we're parents as well. And so we already have it inherent. We understand our culture and our community and we know that the, the, the way we interpret certain things is probably different than um, I think mainstream and dominant culture would interpret things. Um, we just provide space for parents to show up and we invite them to show up as their full selves without judgment. Hmm. Uh, And, you know, the trust is not automatic. Just because we're black and we have black families doesn't mean there's automatic trust. I will say that. Mm -hmm. But when you have a posture of humility and respect, um, you know, people want to build relationship. And, And sometimes it takes more time with some than others, but we always provide a space for that. And... I think we partner a lot with other community-based organizations. We have a lot of wraparound support. We don't think we can do it on our own. We see the value of what community organizations bring, particularly culturally-specific organizations, and from the day one, we've partnered with them. And I think all schools should be doing so.
1: (laughs) That's tremendous. Thank you. Uh, uh, Kali Ladd is the executive director of Kairos PDX. Thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: You got it. it. Thanks. Thanks
0: to Kali for joining The Local. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. And thank you for your five-star review, subscription, telling a friend. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.
1: X-Ray.